I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If you're not familiar with our podcast, well, welcome. And the idea is pretty simple. Almost everyone has a story of a teacher, a professor, a coach who mentored or inspired them to be the best they could be. So we ask you, the people that listen to our show, to point us towards those people, to those educators, so we could talk to them about why they do what they do, their journey in education, and, of course, talk a little bit about the trials and tribulations of teaching in 2020. So if someone comes to your mind during that whole spiel, well, email us, teacherslounge at niu.edu. Our guest this episode is Judith Ann Meyer. She's an artist, a painter to be exact, and art professor at Rock Valley College. I tell my students, let the work tell you, let it guide you, because you're not the dictator of your work. Whatever's in your head is never going to come out on your on the canvas, on your paper, it won't come out. So you have to accept that. But it takes a lot of trust and courage to allow that to happen. Because we generally want to hold on to things and make sure we know what exactly is going on, especially now. Me and Judith had a wide-ranging, fun, and, and honestly pretty long conversation, but I enjoyed it so immensely that I think you're going to as well. So we talked about how to virtually teach about arts, the unexpected places around the world that her art has gone to, and creativity as a spiritual exercise. Before we dive headfirst into arts and creativity, let's take a step back, talk about something everyone in the country is thinking about, voting. Americans all over have cast their ballots, and I talked to a voting rights group works with a lot of students to give young voters a few tips as they head to the polls or vote by mail. With weeks until Election Day, Illinois is breaking early voting records. Residents are voting in person, by mail, and delivering ballots to drop boxes. Alex Boutros is the community organizing manager at Chicago Votes, and they're reminding voters that even if you requested a vote-by-mail ballot, you can still change your mind and vote in person. You're supposed to bring in the vote-by-mail ballot to give to the election judge for them to give you the card to vote early. That's called surrendering your mail-in ballot, so you can't vote twice. And if you do vote by mail, make sure to sign the back of the envelope so it doesn't get returned. The nonprofit has also been sharing information about the Chicago Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, which runs an election protection hotline. If people feel intimidated at the polls or think their rights are being violated, they can call 1-800-OUR-VOTE to reach pro bono attorneys or election experts who can talk them through their situation. Like I said, they focus on getting younger voters engaged, and Butcher says they're even putting together some voter guides on local ballot items like judges, water reclamation commissioners, and the graduated income tax plan. There's a lot of folks will immediately just talk about the presidential election and if that's either bringing them to go vote or stopping them from voting, and so just reiterating that our vote carries a lot more power on the local level. Again, like I said, this is a longer one, so sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Judith Ann Meyer, who also goes by another name, as you'll learn in just a moment. Judith, Judith Ann, which do you prefer? Is it either or? Judith is fine. Judith's fine? Yeah, you know, my students, when I was teaching in New Mexico, my students asked me what they wanted, what I wanted them to call me. I got yeah. that out. Um, I told them, Judith or goddess, and that was a mistake because for the rest of the semester, it was goddess. <laughs> was that, what was the ratio of people in the class that went with Judas versus goddess? Was it most people went goddess? If, no, if they had most, option? Well, I would say of, of the people that did address me with a name, I would say about 
two thirds. <laughs> <laughs> I, see, I feel like I've been making a mistake my whole life now. I've just been going, <laughs> I've been going Peter and Pete and that's it. If I knew that goddess was an option, <laughs> I, I would have adopted that way, way long ago. <laughs> oh, Peter, it was so funny. Yeah, it was, it, you know, there's so many wonderful memories that I have of all the different places where I was and where I am right now. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, at Rock so, Valley College right now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not really meeting them in person that much. Um, I'm only meeting the painting, uh, the painting class four times this semester. Last night we had a critique, and it was so wonderful to just. Be, I mean, everybody wanted to hug each other, but you know, it's like we couldn't, can't do that. Yes, everyone's but the star for human contact. That when you do get to interact with people, it's like this, like completely enlightening experience, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great to see you, Peter. Yeah, it's great to see you too. I, I, I am curious. Like, so four times this semester, you guys are are meeting in person. And yeah. So how many, have you had one of them so far, or two? Uh, there was an introductory thing where I just wanted to show them some examples that I had in the studio. Yeah. And then there was, um, and then last night, and then we're having um, two more critiques, and everybody is really pretty much on board with that. Um, Next semester, we just got a we got a, a notification. We have a new president, yeah. And it's going to be a little bit different for me next semester because it's going to you know we use the words synchronous and asynchronous, you know. Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm going to be teaching uh, my classes synchronously, but it's all going to be on video. So they're going to be you know it's like a long my my painting class will be two almost three hours, and I'll just be watching them work. They'll show me their stuff. And it will really save me from doing all the typing and emails that I get like, constantly from people. You know, like, how is this? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? So they'll get most of their work done in class. Yeah, I was just talking to someone that's a high school math teacher about like, how does their, how does that, like, how does math translate to like online and teaching it that way? I have to imagine it's different for art. Like, how has it been so far? Like, how, what do you make of? of the whole uh, of teaching art uh, remotely? Well, it's a, no matter what you teach, it's, it's a lot more work. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I have, a, I have a 60 hour a week, really. Okay. Just because of getting back to my students, because I know that they all have different schedules since we're not, you know, we don't have a spe specific time that we have to meet. Right. And so um, I want to get back to them as soon as I can so that the time that they have, they can work and they get the feedback from me. So I think this new way that we're gonna be doing it when we're all gonna be meeting at the same time, I think it's gonna be awesome because it's gonna be focused time. Yeah. And I will have more time to do my own painting, you know, my own painting and drawing yeah. in my studio. Because right now I can't. I was, I, just, I was about to ask you that, like how has your relationship to your art been affected by the pandemic? Big time. Big time. Big time. You know, it's, um, I've, you know, I've lost a couple of friends, some to, to COVID, um, not here in town, but where, you know, where I used to be. I'm sorry. And, you know, thank you. You know, it's just like, you get sick and it, do, it doesn't take long. That's it. You know? Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, everybody's feeling, we talked, um, and I'm so happy that for some reason, my students are able to feel safe with me. Maybe it's because I'm a mom, you know, and I just yeah. became a grandma and oh. you know, they, they feel 
they feel, you know, like they can tell me stuff like I'm like, I'm taking Zoloft now because I'm so stressed out by life, you know, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I get it. Yeah, no, I get it too. Just, you know, getting through the day and staying sane outside of just like, you know, meeting deadlines, working, doing classes, like it's an achievement to get anything done. Right. Like just any yeah. kind of productivity is just, I think, incredible. Like, cause I, I, if, you know, if you have a day where it just feels like today, it's just not going to get anything done. Like I, I get that. Like it's, they have, and you, and, you, and you have to really try not to beat yourself up about it. You right. Know, it's, you know, cause sometimes I just think, Oh, I just, I really could just take a nap right now. Yeah. And then you feel guilty for taking a nap because you think of all the things you have to do. Yeah. And then you say to yourself, well, I'm home all day. So how come I can't get all the stuff done? Yeah. Yeah. There's an expectation of like productivity that we have. That's, that's kind of ridiculous, especially now. Cause mm -hmm. like, you know, obviously we're all sick of people saying things like these are unprecedented times, <laughs> but like people are saying it because it's like, like literally a once in a century thing. So like, yeah, don't beat yourself up over productivity because like this has literally never happened to anyone that is alive on this planet right now, pretty much that remembers it, right? Pretty 100 much. years. Pretty much. With your your art, I know you, I mean, 60 hour weeks, you probably don't have too much time, but what has it been like? Have you just not had enough time? Has it impacted the kinds of things you want to make when you can make them or? Well, you know, um, I want to show you something. I, and I found out about this. She had a, I correspond with her parents. Do you see this? Yes. Simone yes. Dinnerstein. She is a, um, she just made this CD. And I really, I really understand what she was talking about. She is a classical um, pianist. Have you heard of her before? I have not. Okay. Well, she, She's really pretty well known and she's, she's gone to Cuba before all this stuff happened and, you know, was able to get grants so that the Havana Orchestra could get all new strings for their instruments and get things taken care of. And she recorded several um, Mozart uh, piano concertos there. Anyway, uh, she said in an interview, interview, which I heard on NPR, she said she usually practices six hours a day and she, if she could get one and a half or two hours in now, uh -huh. So this producer came and said that he wanted to uh, record her practicing in her home and she hadn't been really been practicing, but she said once she sat down and he was just sitting there quietly, she played the best she ever did. And right. I kind of feel that way when I'm able to get myself down in the studio. Um, I'm finding that I'm allowing the work to um, create itself more than usual yeah um, and i'm finding i almost feel heroic in a way when things work out like this one painting and it's going to be in the in the um the uh, midwest finale at the rockford art museum yeah and it's um i thought it was just going to be a landscape you know i mean not just a landscape but you know land but then it turned out to be this magical thing yeah and i I started putting things in the painting that kind of crazy, you know, it was this um, pool of water and just a little bit of landscape at night. And I got, you know, I had everything all looking kind of normal. And then I saw this beautiful reproduction of a Botticelli um, 
painting with this crown over Mary's head. And I said, I got to do this crown. So I crowned, I crowned the pool with water. And then I started getting these kind of ethereal jellyfish things coming up from that pool of water. I can send you an image if you want to see it. I saw this on your, I, I, I found your Facebook page. Oh, did you? Researching, and I wrote, oh, this, I wrote this down. I wrote down the name of your paintings. I saw this and I wanted to ask you about it. Because yes. yeah, I, the crown and the jellyfish too. Yeah. The crown itself too, because it had kind of a textural thing that felt almost mm -hmm. different than the rest of the painting that I thought was incredible. I, I, I loved it. I was scared when I painted that because when I'm painting it, I'm thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and then I kept doing it. I said, you just got to keep doing it. But see, it's that kind of, I feel that when I work in my studio now, it's more of an urgency. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's I feel more urgent about it. And I was going to say, do you think it's urgent to just to be creative or urgent to get the work done? Do you think? Well, I feel like it's both. It's almost like, you know, if you hold your breath for a real long time and you start kind of panicking a little bit. Yeah. That's how it felt. It's like, I got, I can't stop. I have to keep going. I mean, I, this, I, this has to get done. It's, and I've had feelings of the, of the work. And I tell my students, let the work tell you, let it guide you. Cause you're not a dictator of your work. Whatever's in your head is never going to come out on your, on the canvas, on your paper. It won't come out. So you have to accept that. But it takes a lot of trust and courage to allow that to happen. Because we generally want to hold on to things and make sure we know what exactly is going on. Especially yeah. now. Especially now. So to be able to let go of that and to have trust, it's almost like a spirit. It sounds really weird, Peter, but to some people, I'm sure. But No, and not to me. I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Yeah, I think you can probably understand this. But yeah. it's almost like a spiritual experience. There is a spiritual a spirituality to it, and it's almost like uh, you hear people talking about um, almost like separating yourself and divorcing yourself from your own thoughts and being like, right, and trying to just let right. that go through you. Right. Which is you hard know, to do, uh, especially now, right? Like, because everything that you want to do now is control the few things right. you control. Exactly. I mean, to have a feeling of a foundation. Um, several things that have happened in my life, um, I when I taught at Cleveland State University, um, one of my friends and colleagues, um, Dr. Mo Laura Martin, she, um, she, she created this group to study Mayans, Mayan studies, but it was called Kanawanique. And several times we went down to Guatemala and uh, worked with um, rural um, Mayan t uh, teachers to help them do projects to restore their oral traditions. And that was, that was pretty incredible because they didn't even speak Spanish. There's 24 different dialects of Mayan in Guatemala. And, um, and so they spoke the Mayan and we had to have Mayan you know, folks come with us to translate into Spanish. And then I knew a little bit of Spanish so I could go from there. So it was really pretty something else. Yeah. But, but our, um, our base was in Antigua, which is a beautiful colonial town. Um, not that I'm into you know happy about the colonization but anyway it's beautiful yeah. and they had at night they had these processions that was a mixture of the catholic church and the mayan religion and the people there well i i was kind of like the tallest person there <laughs> yeah i felt really happy about that because that's really <laughs> unusual since seventh grade <laughs> yeah so we were you know i didn't have a candle and this 
they and the and the Mayans would wear their beautiful embroidered and you know clothing. Now they can because before it gave them away their patterns would give them away from where they were coming from. And so they didn't want to wear them during the during the war. But anyway, they were all wearing these beautiful things. And it was night and I could smell the copal incense and I heard the music that was Mayan music. And I'm standing there and I'm feeling all this going into my pores of my body almost. And I just said to myself, and, and this this woman, you know, nudged me and she had two candles and she just gave me a candle and we didn't speak the same language, but we were all together. And that's kind of the same feeling I get when something really new comes out when I'm in my studio. It's it's this mystery that was unfolding in front of me. And I felt that way many times when I was there. I feel that way when I teach sometimes. Um, or having conversations like right now with you. Um, you're a good listener. <laughs> <laughs> Professionally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you are. Thank you. I remember near the beginning of the pandemic in, I want to say in April, I was fascinated by how art classes were going to translate when people had to shift immediately online. And I talked to a bunch of folks at NIU in their okay. art department and various different art departments, whether it be, uh, you know, music, painting, mm -hmm. and, and sculpture. And I remember one of the students was a, a sculpture student. I think she was a grad student. And she created, you know, those visualizations of like a virus that you'll see mm -hmm. that looks kind of like a, a circle with little tendrils coming out of it. Right. Exactly. And, uh, and she created that except for the tendrils coming out of it were of this ball were human fingers. She was talking about how it, it was touching on not only just the visualization of it, but also just the idea of, you know, social distancing and, and people being near you and hands becoming something that is, you know, threatening and, and fearful in a way. And that was just absolutely incredible. It, it's like it toes that perfect line between something that's just really gorgeous, but also like kind of like gross. And I've just been thinking about that piece for for months now, like how perfect of an encapsulation that is, right? It really is. I remember that now. So yeah, I've been, I've been thinking, it's, it's, it's been fascinating to me to see just how different creative people have been, you know, how much does the pandemic and how you're feeling get into your work in a, in a, in a literal way like that, but then just how much of it is, is just kind of deeper emotions that you're evoking through it. It's, it's, it's different for everyone, but I think it's fascinating to see how that manifests. Yeah, it really is. I, you know, in listening to Simone talk about, you know, her work and she said, I, I can't believe it's the best playing I've ever done. And she hadn't even practiced. Yeah. So there's something that happens, you know, where I tell my students either, you know, whether it's lecture or in the studio, you know, the mind is always constantly creating and organizing. And sometimes we just have to go with it and see where it takes us. Yeah. And I, I told him, you know, like when you're in school, you know, you have, you're getting a grade and you want to make sure that you, you know, you do what the professor likes or whatever, but, you know, just to learn to trust themselves and to trust me that, you know, or, you know, I can only speak for myself, but to trust me that I really want them to do well. Mm -hmm. It's not my, 
it's, it's, I don't have a goal about, you know, weeding people out or let, making them realize that, you know, well, you have so much more to learn. You know, that's not, that's not what it's all about because school should be, and I don't like to say the word should too much, but it really should be utopia. So I think it's pretty cool. I think so too. Is it, uh, is it just painting that you're teaching right now then? No, I'm teaching, um, it's like an art appreciation class for Western culture. And next semester, I'm going to be doing the same thing. It's like a survey class, like a survey art history class, yeah. non-Western, um, which I think is so important. I was so happy to know that Rock Valley um, had that course because when I was teaching at Western New Mexico University, they didn't have a course like that. And then here we are, uh, almost to Mexico, and we have these people that have all this other stuff imprinted in their DNA from di a different culture. And we're not even learning about it, except for maybe Dia de los Muertos right. or you know, Cinco de Mayo or something like that, which really wasn't a big deal for them. I mean, not as much as Dia de los Muertos. So I, I went to the curriculum committee and I presented this and then fortunately it was approved. And so now that course is, is there. And I think it's so important for us to get out of our little boxes and realize that, you know, the time of the Renaissance in Europe uh, other cultures are way ahead of us. I mean, it's not like it has to be a contest, but you got to really appreciate what other people have done and, yeah. and honor that, you know, and we all need the same things. So that's sometimes hard to get across to people, but. It is, you know. and it, it, right, and all that's based on the kind of value that we've put on, on European yeah. art and culture, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, can you, can we, really quick, you want to play a quick guessing game with me? All right. Are you, are you ready for this? I think are you, so. Are you familiar with the website, uh, ratemyprofessor.com? Yeah. Okay. So I went over there when I was just, you know, <laughs> amidst my other research, because I was like, this is, uh -huh. and you know how, you know, people, it's, it's almost like Rotten Tomatoes for, for prof professors where you can oh, you I know. leave a I rating know. aside, which I, is like totally arbitrary and I get it. It's not important at all, but. If you had to guess, uh, everyone gets a rating out of five cumulatively with reviews. If you had to guess what your rating would be, what do you think it's at? Well, it's been a long time since I looked at it. <laughs> I, I think maybe 3.5. You have a 4.1 out of five. It's a really good score. Oh, is it? Good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anything higher than four out of five is really solid because people are- Is it really? People it are harsh good? on websites. Yeah. <laughs> But one of the other things I, I thought was interesting that I wanted to bring up to you is they have a thing called top tags on there, which is like a buzzword that people would use, just like, oh, what's, an, what's yeah. an adjective to describe someone? Mm. And I'm curious if, if you had to say, you know, just, you know, adjectives of how you can describe a professor, of what the top things, words that were used, what would you say, if, if you were to say what things that you were trying to evoke, like what would you want those adjectives to be? And then I'll tell you what people said. Oh, this is fun. This is kind of fun, but it's a little scary too. <laughs> um, I would none of them are bad. I, none of them are bad adjectives. Oh, okay, here. okay. I would want them to say that I was understanding, that I knew my material, and this is not in order of importance. Yes. Understanding, I knew my material, and that I cared about my students, and I was passionate about what I was talking about. Okay, so I have four of them here. And again, there's no like order. There's no like one, okay. two, three, four. Okay. We have inspirational. Oh. I think that's what you said. 
caring. Okay, so I think that's kind of what you were going for. Hilarious was on there. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes I am. <laughs> <laughs> and then one of them's not really an adjective. It just says clear grading criteria. And I was like, I'll throw that in too. That's a compliment. That's just, that's, a, that's actually a good professor compliment. Clear well, grading. you know, they need that. Yeah, I was going to say. But one of the things, the last, you know, the last rate my professor part of this I wanted to bring up too, because it reminded me of something you were talking about when you were talking about uh, the non-Western arts and when you were talking about uh, going to Guatemala is that some people had said that, um, you know, that you had, it was nice that you had visited some of the places that you were talking about and that they were learning about. When you think about that, what are the places that stick out to you? Well, I've taken my students to quite a few places in Europe. We spent time in Mexico and I spent time and I didn't take any students, but I've had students in Guatemala. I know I took a, um, a class to, when we went to see the Sistine Chapel, I remember this is, it's, you know, a lot of people have seen the Sistine Chapel, but this was an amazing experience. I, some of my painters came with me and I was looking up at the ceiling, you know, and uh, pretty incredible stuff. Have you seen it? Not in person. Oh, it, it's outrageous. The amount of work, it's just gorgeous. And I mean, it's, I can't even, it's stupendous that one man would do this. Yeah. So anyway, I, I felt, I felt, I was standing there with my hands to my sides and I felt my hand, somebody was holding both sides, two people were holding my hands. And I looked at them and it was my students and they had tears running down their faces. And it was just, I could sense that this was really something that they're gonna remember the rest of their lives. Really? It wasn't so much that it was the religion, you know, we were standing right in the middle. So it was that point where, you know, God and Adam were going almost like this. So it was the fact that we're seeing this massive amount of painting. Michelangelo was supposed to have his, um, his assistants help him paint it, but he didn't like the way that they painted. And Michelangelo didn't even consider, consider himself a painter. I mean, he only probably produced one painting outside the when he was a student. And so he did this and it, the volume of the bodies, you know, it, it's like you could just almost feel their three dimensionality. It was nothing short of a miracle that this painting was created. And I think they sensed that. And that's what I mean, you know, the, just, it happens. Yeah, and we were talking about that with like being, when you're making art, you know, trying to, be outside of yourself in a way, but like appreciating art, I feel like is the same thing, but, you know, mm -hmm. trying to, to be in that moment because, you know, I think my mind immediately goes to like, you know, a uh, hundred, like 200 people crowding around the Mona Lisa or something like that. Oh, what an horrible experience that is. Right. Well, and there's <laughs> a, one of my favorite stand-up comedians is a guy named Pete Holmes. Okay. And he has a, a joke about that basically saying that, for the longest time in his life, when you go to museums, you don't actually look at the art, you just look at it for long enough for the people around you to think that you get it. <laughs> That's like, pretty good. What, what is it, like, how many minutes is it before I, everyone else is convinced that I, I've really had a spiritual <laughs> experience with this? That there's like, there's a performative aspect to it where you just have to look ponderous at <laughs> yes. it and, and be feeling, making sure other people know that you are profound right oh yeah there's like there's so much of an ego even about looking at art <laughs> you know it's sort of like you know it 
I can remember when I was younger. I used to do that. <laughs> <laughs> of course, everyone does that. Everyone does that. I was at the, I can remember, you know, like getting out of high school, just going into college. And I go to the Detroit Institute of Art, which is a fabulous museum. Yeah. And I would go there and I would, you know, I was such a, oh, what a, you know, pulled my head out of you know where. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm with my friend and we start speaking French. How hoity-toity is that? So we start speaking French and we're looking at it and then we're critiquing it as if we knew what the heck we were talking about. Right. And I remember how that- French just loud enough for other people to hear you. Oh, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah. Kind of kind of up the volume a little bit when people are around and they would look and we think, oh yes, we press them. <laughs> yeah, I that's see what I, I'm doing the same thing except for I'm just casually throwing out random terms. I remember it was like, oh bro. <laughs> oh yes, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. It's kind of like a guy Cocoa. ordering Cocoa. yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a guy ordering dinner for his date. You know, it's like you know, you just want to slap him, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's trying, he's trying to BS his way through a wine pairing. You're right. like, we just order food. <laughs> you know you want the hot dog. <laughs> of course, it, it, yeah, it's, it's hilarious how difficult it is, it is for people just to look at things and mm -hmm. accept them for what they are and like appreciate mm -hmm. them or not and just like leave. Well, it's really important to, especially now, to just quiet yourself. Um, I worked with, I did several projects with a, a professor at Western New Mexico University. His name, he's now in Scotland, he left. And his name is Suk Joon Kim. And he was into uh, a lot of multimedia stuff. And we did some installations and some performances together. And we had a class where it was called intensive listening or intentional listening. Sometimes in class, we would just go someplace and not say a word and sit there for half an hour, 45 minutes. Because you have to make yourself do that now in this crazy fast paced world. I mean, how often can you do that unless you're really good at meditating and, you know, stopping your mind from racing. Um, so anyway, yeah, no, I think I, that's I, really important. I, I, I have to, uh, my family is uh, distance runners. My dad, oh. my dad and my brother are, and my stepmom was a runner too. And I, I think that I use running as just as equally exercise and equally, if not more, meditation. And just allow, because I, I don't listen to music while I do it. I don't take my phone with me. And it's like, just that is the time that I can be in my own head. And I think that a lot of people like, or a lot of people don't get running and don't understand why we're purposely exhausting ourselves. But I think that is the, that, that, that meditative part of it is, is, is yes. humongous, right? Yeah, and I've heard that. I've heard that before from people who run. Um, and uh, I wish I could, I used to do that, but then I found out I really didn't like it. So I stopped, but. Yeah. You no, know, but but everybody's got to find their own little niche, you know. Yeah. So you were in New Mexico for quite some time as well. About ten years, and before that, for the longest time, I was in the Akron, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio area where I taught in in diff at different universities there. Oh really? And yeah. Have you been pretty much? Uh, have you been an adjunct for a long time, or been doing that? Yeah. For 
it was only about a year or two where I was full time. Yeah. And it was just life circumstances. I had, um, I had options or I was, you know, now you, you really have to go through a betting process, which, you know, is quite involved. But um, I had people in California and in Ohio ask me to come and be full-time professor, just invite me to do that. But, you know, I was married and uh, I think I mentioned that to you, you know, like my, my husband was a full-time professor and he had a business and we were pretty much, you know, he didn't want to up and leave. So I just didn't do it. Yeah. Um, and probably, you know, I, I kind of wish, you know, we've been divorced for quite a while and I, probably I, if life repeated itself and I was back in that time, I'd probably do the same thing again. I don't really, you know, I wish I could have had that opportunity to be able to belong to a place where I could build something, which is what I did in New Mexico. Talk about being an adjunct faculty member, right? Like that's, I don't know if some people outside of higher ed realize that I think 47% of all faculty across the country are part-time, you know, and those are people that, you know, they probably don't get as much communication with, you know, if you're not a tenure track person and, well, you know, and they're not getting paid as much, they're not getting the amount of benefit. So it's, yeah. No, I mean, sometime I would really like to talk about this because I think once I stop teaching and I don't know if I'll ever be able to, because, you know, we don't, I had to spend all of my, state teachers money with the move, you know, we don't have 401k, they don't give that to us. So I really have working. And in a way, I'm really kind of glad because, you know, gets me out there and I really love it. But one day when I don't, I'm going to be an advocate for adjunct people because uh, unless you're in a union, you're at the whim of the administration or even just one person. And you don't have any rights. and it's a low, it's a low paying job. I remember uh, when I said I wanted to teach more classes and that, you know, you can't, you can only teach a certain amount of classes, but it wasn't here at, at you know, in, Rock, in the Rockford area, but in a, in a different state, they said, well, you know, you just, we just have adjuncts because they just do it because, um, you know, um, it's kind of like a hobby. Well, that's really, you know, there's a lot of condensa- uh, con- uh, condescension. Yeah. I was going to say condensation. Yeah, well, maybe that too. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? That's yeah. one day, one day I really, because I've been burned enough that I had to move across the country two times. Yeah. And you hope that it doesn't get uh, worse now with the pandemic and hiring freezes, budget cuts, layoffs. I mean, it's a very tough time for, for colleges. And I know that the people, the faculty that that's going to hit first, you know, are the lowest paying people and are the adjunct faculty members, right? Well, actually, it's hitting a lot of the highest paid people. And I have a very good friend who really built her program at a university in, um, in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And without warning, I mean, she's been there. Next year will be her 30th year. And she's so well known around the area. Um, one, one day without notice, I think it was 90 full-time tenured professors were let go. Yeah. Just like that. Save money, you know. And I think what's going to happen, Peter, is that there's going to be more adjuncts that are going to be hired because it's less expensive. You don't have to make the commitment. And but they're not going to be treated any better. Right. So, you know, I know I'm replaceable. I mean, it's it's been history. (laughs) But, you know, you you really have to keep yourself up. 
I really, and the thing that keeps myself up is that I can, you know, I see some students that I hadn't even seen or had been in contact with for five years. They come and see me on the street and give me, a, not now, but, you know, give me a hug, introduce me to their parents, tell me about their projects, that they still have them and they think about them. That means everything to me. Judith, do you think, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, you've moved across the country teaching. You've been teaching, I imagine, I don't know exactly, but for, for quite some time. Yeah. As you get older and grow as an artist, how do you think that that has impacted your growth and your approach to teaching other people about art and teaching other people? Well, I know you probably, people probably say this all the time. You know, when I was in my 20s, I wish I was in my head that, where I am now back then. Yeah. I just feel that, you know, the, I, the experiences I had, I never thought I would have when I was younger. And um, to be able, like when they say hilarious, my students, if somebody says hilarious, you know, I do have some funny stories, but it was just from living. So it has really impacted my way of teaching because I, I learn what works, what hasn't. And you can't learn that from a book or from a set of rules. You just have to see it and how students react to you and react to what they're learning. And with my art, it's just like adding more data that I can just pull out, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, is I, I, in my mind, I think it's like uh, it's like Photoshop, right? You can just keep adding layers to things, just mm -hmm. make it more and more dense, and just add right. more things, that, more options, basically. Like, like a phrase that I always like and that I use a lot is that, uh, and I don't actually know who originally said this quote, but I think about it a lot, which is the confidence is knowing that you have options, and I think that's, that, that's it, right? That really is great. I've never heard that before, but it really is because when you don't feel you have options, there's, that's hopeless, you know? Yeah. And we can think about that for life, but also for art, right? That you have more, you have more in your arsenal if you need to pull mm -hmm. that out. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Cause I'm thinking somebody asked me, well, what are you doing in your studio now? What, what direction are you working? Cause I've worked, you know, like this painting behind me. I don't know if you can see it. I can but, it's not objective, meaning you can't see any kind of object or recognize anything in it. And abstract is like the starry night where you knew, you know that it's a starry night, but if you looked out the window and saw it like that, you'd probably have to sit down and maybe <laughs> right, to, yeah. get a grip. Yeah, be a <laughs> little, some illicit substances involved, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you just, it's abstracted from reality. So abstract is not what that is. That's not objective. But I'm work, I want to work in, in three different ways. The way with the, the one with the um, crown, um, kind of, I guess, if you had to call it magic realism or something like that. that That's a great be, term. I think we could use that, yeah. And a lot of uh, Latin American artists are, are called that, magic realists. And, but I've always worked that way. Um, some, and then I work non-objectively. And then I'm, I'm thinking about doing some portraiture, which I haven't done in a long time. Really? And so those three different um, venues, those three different categories, um, I think one of the most, uh, I should tell you, I really want to tell you about the, the most wonderful project I think Please. that I've ever worked on. Um, back uh, in the late 80s, uh, I, I was a member of Amnesty International. I still support them. Um, and I had a lot more money back then, so I was able to give a lot more and get a lot more involved. And I thought, well, you know, I really want them to know about my art. 
So um, that was, um, I was very much concerned about Latin America and, you know, El Salvador and the Civil War there. I adopted a, at that time, she was a little girl from El Salvador. Today's her birthday. And, oh, um, happy birthday. What, yeah. What's her name? So her name is Aveline. Aveline. Yeah. yeah. So um, beautiful girl. And, um, and, and, and now I have a granddaughter from her. <laughs> my, oh. my only granddaughter. Congratulations, so by the way. So, thank you. Yeah. So anyway, um, I, I called. I talk about confidence, you know. Uh, that was quite a while ago. And I called Amnesty International and I said, um, you know, I want to send you some images of my work. And I was wondering if, you know, in order to get some money for Amnesty, because I was, you know, Sting was really into that kind of, you know, he was really uh, concerned about that area of the world at the same time. And some of the lyrics to some of his songs really lined up with, with what I was interested in and creating. Well, they didn't have the money for that because I wanted him to write the lyrics and me to do the imagery. Yeah. But then they said, but we're, we're, um, we're organizing a world concert tour. And so she took a look at my, we were in contact daily. And she took a look at my art, loved it. And so I did a, a poster for that world concert tour. I was one of only two artists in the United States. The other was Seymour Schwartz, who was a very uh, well-known graphic designer in New York. And me! So, <laughs> so the poster went all over the world. And um, I remember I got a call one day. Uh, it was, actually, it was quite late at night. That when they went to Russia, Gorbachev saw... The poster and wanted 200 of them and they asked me permission to give Gorbachev 200 of the posters I said are you kidding give him as many as he wants okay. so it was awesome and so they used it for their world uh, they used it for their um, holiday greeting card and stuff like that so that was <laughs> wow. a wonderful experience talk about places you don't expect your art to go okay so I think that we are we're, we're running out of time so I want to give you the chance to is there one other story that sticks out to you that you know that, that you want to tell anything in particular it could be anything from your teaching artistic journey just whatever you think whatever comes to mind when I say that just I, I'd love to hear one more okay well this is just recently but I've done this project for a long long time it's not really a story but it's an it's a project that I have my students do Please. and um it's, it's, and they just finished up with some of them. And if, and if you want me to, I'd be happy to send you some images. Yeah. But it, I show them a picture of, um, or else they look at an interior that's really like crammed with all kinds of stuff. And they do a contour line drawing, which you don't, I don't want them to take the pencil off the paper. And they, um, they just keep drawing for like 15 minutes. It doesn't look realistic. And then they make a little window mat that they go across that drawing and they find a composition that balances just lines and shapes. They do a non-objective painting from that. And then what they do is they take that painting, which is a square, to get, you know, that either they make copy to, copies themselves or there's a place here in town that knows about this project and they wait for my students to come. And they make they make two 16 part grids where they put these 16 um, little three by three inch copies of their painting together. And it comes out to be this glorious, almost impossibly beautiful 
um, grid system that they see it and they go, oh my gosh, I just can't believe that, you know, I did this or this would happen. And I think that when they do that project in the beginning of the semester, they realize that, you know, basically miracles will happen every day for them. And it's almost like a miracle that these, this beautiful thing that they would never think what could be created is right in front of them and they did it. And um, you just have to be open to letting it happen. That's good. I think, I think that's, that's a good place to end on. Let the miracles in every day. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> well, Judith, again, that's, thank you a ton for wanting to sit down and, and chat. I loved it, Peter. Thanks for listening. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. This is how we get great guests like Judith, so send them our way. Teacherslounge at NIU.edu, wherever you're hearing this. Leave us a rating, subscribe, like us, whatever you can do. Helps more people find the show. Special thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ups for the awesome music you hear. Big shout out to Spencer Tripp for our logo. I have been your host, Peter Mudlin, and you have been listening to Teacher's Lounge. We will be back very soon.